0: Iran seems like this country is always in the news and rarely for happy reasons. But did you know that Iran has one of the world's fastest growing churches despite all the persecution? Well, stick around and you'll discover Not Forgotten, a ministry to women in Iran. Plus, you'll encounter stories of how teenagers are paying the price for their faith in Muslim countries. Stories I guarantee you'll be sharing tonight over the dinner table. This is The Land and the Book with Bible scholar and Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, we've got an announcement to make. We had a fun moment last week. Oh,
1: John, we did. The book blast was amazing, and the response was even more amazing. Uh,
0: Tell us some of the responses we got. Well, we haven't got time for all 48 because there were 48 folks who responded, but our winner, Charlie, is Mary Hayes, who listens to The Land and the Book on Kinship Christian Radio. There are so many reasons I listen to and would recommend The Land and the Book to others, and I don't know where to start. She says, I love the insight into the history of Israel. I love the current events of the Middle East that we're about to get into, by the way. Those stories aren't covered by the news media. I so enjoy the statements of those who have traveled to Israel. I like the insights you call amazing Israel. The devotional is great and encourages me to dig deeper. And I like how you give easy-to-understand explanations of complex issues. I love that you speak about how to reach out with the gospel message. And in the time that my station has carried your program, I can see growth— in my spiritual life and an increased desire to learn more. I've always had a heart for Israel, but your program has increased my prayers for Israel. So many of the insights that you share bring greater understanding of the scriptures for me. So blessings to all of you. And that's from Mary Hayes. Thank you so much to everybody who responded and who sent an email. We wish we could send all of you this pack of six books that Mary's gonna receive, but promise, we're going to do this again in the near future, so hey, maybe next time. Well, our current events stories, Charlie, are never lacking. Plenty of those as we look over the Middle East. Israel has recently experienced a series of terrorist attacks by Palestinians. Are these attacks the start of renewed conflict between the two groups or simply random acts of violence?
1: Well, right now they appear to be attacks just by individuals acting alone. Over the past three weeks, One individual was killed and four were injured in a shooting attack in Jerusalem's Muslim quarter. And then an ultra-Orthodox man on his way to pray was stabbed outside Damascus Gate. And then a security guard was wounded in a car ramming attack at a road checkpoint. And then finally, just earlier this week, a woman walking with her children was stabbed by a teenage girl. Now, in the first three cases, the attackers were shot and killed by nearby security personnel. Uh, The girl ran away but was later captured none of the attackers were sent by terrorist groups. Uh, The one thing they all seem to have in common is the fact that social media publicity following each attack might have inspired the copycat attack that followed. Uh, One day after the first killing, Israeli security forces did thwart a major Hamas terror plan and captured 50 members of a Hamas cell following a months-long investigation. A large number of weapons were seized along with enough material to make four suicide belts. Their goal in addition to sowing fear and panic in Israel, was evidently to try to destabilize the Palestinian Authority. Hamas and other radical groups have also been behind protests that have been taking place in Bethlehem's refugee camps. Some are calling those protests a small intifada or uprising against the Palestinian Authority. Uh, The Christian community in Bethlehem is concerned that the protests there will spread and ruin the upcoming Christmas festivities that are already suffering because of the pandemic. So let's hope Israel and the Palestinian Authority can quietly work together to stop the violence and those behind it before it can spread.
0: Well, just a further question on this issue of violence against Jewish people in a broader context. Why does there seem to be an increasing level of anti-Semitism around the world, including here in the United States?
1: Uh, I believe Satan's doing everything possible to destroy God's plan and his people, and that includes promoting anti-Semitism. At its core, anti-Semitism is satanically inspired. Uh, but there's also an anti-Israel bias. Uh, It shows up in mainstream media and in literature. Uh, In just one example, Irish novelist Sally Rooney refused to allow her third novel to be translated into Hebrew by an Israeli publisher. Uh, A letter of support for her decision was then signed by 70 American and British authors backing what they called her exemplary boycott of Israel. Now, her action's just a small reminder of the BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement, that seeks to delegitimize all Israel. Though it's masked in accusations of apartheid against Israel, it's really another form of anti-Semitism. Just a week ago, the United Nations approved a resolution that disavowed Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, identifying it instead as an exclusively Islamic site. Hmm. Now, thankfully, the U.S. voted against the resolution, but most of the world simply refuses to acknowledge any Jewish connection to the very site that held the first and second Jewish temples. Uh, But perhaps most disturbing of all, John, is a recent survey of American evangelicals in which 28% reject the idea that the Jews were ever God's chosen people. Uh, That's a higher percentage than the 20% who identified themselves as supportive of Israel. Now, the majority in the survey, 53%, we're unsure how they view the Jewish people in Israel. And that's why it's so important for followers of Jesus to know the Bible and to know what it says about Israel, in passages like Genesis 12:1 to3 and in Romans 11, where Paul reminded his readers that God's promises to Israel didn't come with an expiration date. And that's important for us as well. if God can break His promises to Israel, How do we know he can't break his promises to us? Mm. As the world turns against Israel, we need to reaffirm our support. Now, that doesn't mean everything they do is right, but it does mean we need to reaffirm their right to be in the land and affirm the reality that God still has a future for the nation of Israel.
0: That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. We're looking at current events, and boy, that's a a disturbing collection of statistics you've put together for us, Charlie. Let's move on to story number three. Plans underway now to develop a center for ancient agriculture in the Hinnom Valley. That's just south of the original city of David. But like anything connected with Jerusalem, the plan is hotly contested. No surprise. So Charlie, what exactly is the problem with this plan to create a belt of tourist sites around Jerusalem?
1: Yeah, like everything in that area, archaeology and history quickly get intertwined with political and religious friction. Uh, The plan is to develop an educational farm in the Hinnom Valley where visitors can learn about traditional agriculture. Uh, The area is under control of Israel's Nature and Parks Authority, but the farm is being developed by the City of David Foundation. That's the same group sponsoring the excavations there at the City of David. Uh, Their goal is to allow individuals to come and learn about traditional agriculture, including things like how a wine press how an olive oil press worked. So, you know, you say, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the group sponsoring this does have an agenda. They want visitors to see the connection between Israel, the land, and Jerusalem. Those who oppose the group are accusing them of wanting to Judaize the Hinnom Valley, along with the city of David and the Temple Mount. Now, there are olive trees in the Hinnom Valley that have been tended by Arab families for generations. And the fear is that as the center expands, it might someday appropriate those trees. But there's no decision to do that, certainly not right now. And personally, I see the attempt to help individuals understand their historical roots as a good thing. But I do hope the Palestinians who've been tending those trees will be allowed to continue doing so. It it would be a shame to destroy a wonderful example of historic agriculture in the name of creating a site dedicated to preserving those
0: values. Well, researchers at the Technion in Israel have announced the development of a smart polymer that can heal surgical incisions without sutures while delivering medication and monitoring the healing process. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel, Charlie. Yeah, John. Sutures have been around for thousands
1: of years to close wounds and they work, though they often leave a more visible scar. Now other techniques have been introduced. You know, we know about bandages, band-aids, staples, and even glue, but they all have their own limitations. But now this scientist in the chemical engineering lab at the Technion has developed a smart, sutureless dressing that binds the edges of an incision together, wards off infection, and even digitally reports on how it's healing. The scientist and his graduate assistant created a polymer from sulfur and nitrogen with integrated carbon nanotubes that provides electrical conductivity to the various sensors. The dressing is applied before the scalpel makes an incision. After surgery, the two ends bind back together within seconds. The dressing can then release antibiotics to help prevent infection, and it connects wirelessly to the team's smart devices, delivering real-time reports on temperature, pH, and glucose levels. Now, in lab experiments, wounds closed with this smart dressing healed as fast as those closed with sutures and with reduced rates of infection. Hmm. They've already begun discussion with agencies on bringing this new technology to market, but it means someday soon your doctor might apply the bandage before he even makes the incision. And when that day comes, John, you can thank the researchers at the Technion in amazing Israel.
0: Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that update on current events. If it's been a while since we've heard from you, we'd love to get your thoughts about the land and the book as a, as a help to you and your, your walk with Jesus. Connect with us at the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, a lot of people, I think, are maybe not taking advantage of the website, where people can find information about our guests, as well as a complete set of links to the Ministries of Moody Bible Institute. Also, there's a link you can click to learn about books that Charlie Dyer has written and a lot of great resources at thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, we're connecting with Muslim women, stories you don't want to miss. It's time for Name That Country. Are you ready? Its carpets are world famous, and it has the world's second largest gas reserves after Russia, ranking third in the world in natural gas production. It also has the world's fourth biggest oil reserves. And did you know it's the only country on Earth where you can find the Asiatic cheetah? I'm talking about Iran. Iran. Did you know it has one of the world's fastest-growing churches despite the persecution that you might have heard about? Up next, an inside look at a unique ministry to women in Iran, plus how teenagers are paying the price for their faith in Muslim countries, and then a look at training American women right here in the USA to empower them to reach out with the love of Christ to their Muslim friends. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager. With us today, Tom and Joanne Doyle of Not Forgotten, an outreach of uncharted ministries elevating Muslim and Jewish women to their biblical place of honor in Christ. Along with her husband, Tom, Joanne reaches out to the people of the Middle East and other regions of the world, and she also engages in training American workmen through creative strategies, and she is the face of Flourish, a unique television ministry to women in Iran. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Joanne and Tom.
2: Thank you, John. That's a humbling introduction.
3: Pleasure to be with you. As always, thank you.
0: Well, Joanne, first of all, what exactly is Flourish? Is this a daily program, weekly? What? How long is each episode? What can you tell us?
2: Flourish is just a gift from the Lord, to be honest with you. As the world shut down with the pandemic at the beginning of COVID, A ministry, a partner ministry, Iran Alive Ministries, came and asked us if we would create a program for Iranian women. And I thought they meant, you know, just like be on a show or something because they broadcast via satellite, you know, 24-7 into Iran. So I thought they were just asking me to come in and talk to women. And they said, no, since COVID, we have had so many more women come to faith in Christ, and we don't have a program that's geared especially for them. They translate lots of programs into Farsi, but nothing is actually created for the Farsi woman. Hmm. So they asked me to start creating a year's worth of programs that they were going to broadcast every single week. Hmm. And I felt completely overwhelmed, but totally honored and so-called by the Lord So we created, my team and myself, this program that we named Flourish, and it does beam into Iran every week, a new episode every week, a whole season is 13 episodes. So we came up with content and a set and all the things so that we could honor Jesus to introduce that Muslim woman to faith in Christ.
0: Well, that sounds exciting, but I ask myself, why would Iran allow such a program in? I'm I'm assuming you are exclusively online? Or is this actually broadcast? Is it satellite? How does the program reach Muslim women inside the country?
2: Well, in Iran, you know, um, satellite dishes are illegal, so that means almost everybody has one. (laughs) And so this ministry broadcasts from here in the States into Iran, and Iran tries to block these television satellite programs, but they can't. They have one satellite dish that literally beams straight up toward heaven, and they just can't stop it. (laughs) So even though it's illegal, Iran Alive Ministries and others, they broadcast on the television through the satellite 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And thousands, as you mentioned, you know, Iran is the fastest growing church in the world per capita. So thousands every month are coming to Faith in Christ. And Tom, what is the number of how many people watch these programs a week?
3: Yeah, on this satellite, uh, Shabaka 7, there's 25 to 30 million weekly watching programming. I mean, when you think of the population of Iran, yeah. that's like, you know, about a third, I think, that are watching this network. They're primed. They're ready. They, they want to hear about Jesus. Yeah.
0: So, Joanne, how do you choose topics? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, we're going to have a, you know, a TV program. We're going to reach Iranian women. But you're an American. You're not Iranian. You weren't raised Muslim. How do you choose topics, and how do you know you're connecting?
2: Well, that is such a good question, and that was something I had to literally get on my face before the Lord and ask Him. You know, we've been working in the Middle East for over 25 years, so we've worked a lot with Muslim women, but I'm not from a Muslim background, yeah. but the Holy Spirit speaks every language, doesn't He? And so I literally spent hours on my face asking God, where do we go? What are the needs? One thing I did learn about the people, the women that watch this show is there's three groups that watch. There's the woman that's still a Muslim, and she doesn't know Jesus, but she's asking questions. Then there's another one, and that's the woman who is a brand new believer in Christ, but she's got no biblical foundation at all. Uh She's got no understanding of Scripture, so she needs to be discipled. Then there's the women that they've come to faith in Christ, they've been discipled, and they're the leaders, and they need further training to lead others into a deeper walk with Jesus. So in addition to hearing what topics we talk about, then also, how do I meet the needs, or how do we meet the needs of all three of those people groups? Plus, the men may be listening in and the children. Hmm. But again, the Holy Spirit speaks all languages, and one by one, the Lord would just lead me to these topics, and many of them truly straight from my devotions. I would journal, you know, God would speak to me, that would become an episode. For instance, one topic that we did was suicide and um, drug addiction is huge. So we did a whole episode on how to overcome addiction, how to overcome anxiety and things like that. We had a counselor that's on our team come in and share. And Mm. so we make it super interactive, try to keep it fast moving and fun to keep the attention of the audience. And we're hearing great response that people not only are coming to faith in Christ, but they're being encouraged in their walk with God.
0: Creative connections with Muslims. That's our focus today on the land and the book as we visit with Joanne Doyle and her husband, Tom, of Not Forgotten, an outreach of Uncharted Ministries. You know, Tom, what kind of impact stories are you encountering as you uh, connect with people who are watching the program? Any stories that have flowed into your ministry? Well, you
3: know what? We know this, that um, the average monthly decisions for Christ went from a couple of hundred on Iran Lives Network to like 3,000. There's just more people at home. They're watching. They're interested. One woman called into the ministry, and here she is in Iran. I mean, for you to have a Bible— That could be a death sentence. She was begging for pages of the scriptures, Mm. hearing about Jesus, seeing the scripture on the television, just begging. I think about that, John, how many Bibles we have. And here's a woman just saying, please, we need the word of God. We don't have it, so maybe they're not able to get the Bible to them physically. Uh, in some ways, they are, and we were privileged to smuggle some in before. But that doesn't cover the needs. There's, there's literally millions of people that are open to Christ in Iran right now. So a television program helps them, but boy, they are thirsty for God's word. And you know, I
0: have to ask, and uh, I don't know who's better equipped to answer this one, Tom or Joanne. What kind of opposition? Have you encountered, if any, to this television ministry reaching into Iran?
2: You know, one thing I would love to share with that is, you know, as Tom mentioned, the Word of God is they're, they're hungry and they're thirsty for it, and it's hard to get it into their hands. And we are working to try to get Bibles into Iran, whether it's on a stick or, you know, the actual hard copy. But even getting them into the country, distributing them is super, super hard. Um, But you know what's happening? And one of the oppositions, to answer your question, is, first of all, the gospel will not be bound, as it says in Timothy. God's word will not be chained. It will get in there. But the enemy is also trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the things that's happening is false religions are entering into Iran. Jehovah's Witnesses and Hmm. Mormons are also on the streets of Iran giving them what they call, I think they call it the Barnabas Bible. So, it's not the true Word of God. So, part of what we're facing is false religions, idolatry. So, one of the things we do talk about so often on Flourish is getting back into the Word of God, whether it's something that they can see on the television screen. You know, we will have verses often printed out as we're going through them, printed on the bottom of the screen that they, of course, are translated into Farsi. So, any creative way to get them to see the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, and then prayerfully to get a copy into their hands. And people, are, by the way, are dying, losing their lives to try to get scriptures to them in their own country.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Joanne and Tom Doyle of Not Forgotten and Outreach of Uncharted Ministries are with us today. Well, many listeners will have heard of the expression MBB, which stands for Muslim Background Believer. Typically, these are adults coming to faith, But Joanne and Tom, you and the team at Uncharted Ministries are now reaching out to MBBT's. What does that T stand for, and what's the ministry all about?
2: Yes, MBBT. Muslim Background Believer, MBBT, Muslim Background Believer team. And what we're seeing happen, John, is so exciting, is the next generation is embracing Christ. So moms and dads are coming to Christ from a Muslim background. They're passing their faith on to their children. So there's this whole generation of teenagers that are now wanting to walk with Christ. Mm. And so one of our leaders in the Middle East, she is strategically reaching out to these teenage girls, because what happens so often is even... Even though the parents now love Jesus, they've got a lot of mouths to feed. Many of them are refugees, and they don't have the money to feed all their children. So sometimes, more often than not, they are marrying their young daughters off. And usually to Muslim men just because they can't afford to take care of them. So, our leader there in the Middle East country, she has a heart to reach these teenage girls, and we're trying to, we're right in the process of creating a program to give them some training so that they can get a job so that they are not forced into an early marriage. To give you an example, we just had one of the girls that was coming to our teen program, all of a sudden she stopped showing up, 15 years old. And they discovered that, sure enough, her father had married her to a Muslim man. So this program, as I know, isn't that heartbreaking? So this program is to provide these girls with an education and learning English, computer skills, and then a trade so that they can not only provide for themselves and, and build a future, but also help provide for their families. So this is a super exciting program that we're just now embarking on.
0: Well, not many of us can travel to Muslim countries, as you and Tom do, but every indication as we look around our neighborhoods is that Muslim people are moving here to America. So, Tom and Joanne, you guys are actually equipping Americans to connect with their Muslim friends. What does this look like?
2: You know,
3: we're so blessed because in America, uh, we can train people how to reach out to Muslims. Most people feel ill-equipped. We did, too. We do two gatherings. We do a seminar called How to Love Muslims to Christ, and then one specifically for women called a scene gathering. And Joanne, why don't you tell them what you do?
2: Yes, so our scene gathering is gathering the women of the body of Christ here in America and teaching them how to engage the Muslims around them. John, you probably remember back in the day when we prayed for the 1040 window. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? Sure. Oh, yeah. That 1040 window of the longitude and latitude on our globe, and that's where most of the Muslims reside, is in that scary place. And we used to pray, God, send missionaries into the 1040 window. Well, God has answered that prayer in a unique way. He's brought the 1040 window to us, and the missionaries that He's called— are also us. So our goal is to teach women here in the States how to engage the Muslims that live around us. So we have a gathering. It's inspirational. We give them some information on Islam 101, but we want them to be excited of what God is doing in the Muslim world, how Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus. But the key part is then we take these women out on a mini-mission trip, and we actually Mm. go in their own neighborhoods to Muslim areas, and we have conversations with Muslim women, and we show them how easy it is, first of all, to develop a friendship, and then have the permission, of course, to share the love of Christ with them.
0: Hey, Tom, what kinds of mistakes do we typically make in reaching out to Muslims?
3: You know what? I think so many times people are just afraid of them, Mm -hmm. and they don't know what to say. So they may really back down from their faith. If you get to know Muslims, there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, wow, you're a Muslim. Hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. We don't need to avoid that. In fact, they respect you Mm -hmm. more if you identify yourself. They don't see an ulterior motive there. And then you can build off that. Gee, I've always wanted to go to Iran. I've always wanted to visit that incredible country, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think we tend to just shy away from mentioning who we are that looks deceptive to Muslims. Just tell them, hey, we're followers of Jesus. We love people from Iran or wherever they're from. Yeah.
0: So what about someone listening right now who wants to take that next step in reaching out to Muslims on behalf of Christ? What's a good first step, and uh, what tools have you got at your website? Where could they find those tools?
2: Well one of the first things I would encourage our listeners to do is number one don't be afraid. You know, we have been given the most beautiful gift in the world and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and we've been given an invitation, a beautiful invitation to share it with everyone. So, don't be afraid. Engage when you see a Muslim woman in a, you know, hijab. They're usually the easier ones to spot. First of all, make eye contact, smile at them. And if you can, have a conversation. Hi, how are you? You know, gosh, where are you from? Or where's your family friends? Something along those lines. Because Muslims, more than anything, are longing for relationships.
0: And that's a great way to land this conversation. Tom and Joanne Doyle of Uncharted Ministries, thank you so much for sharing these great stories and for all that you're doing to equip us to care about our Muslim friends and neighbors. Always good to have you with us pleasure
3: to be with you.
2: Thank you, John, for having us.
0: Don't go away. Charlie Dyer's back with questions and answers here on The Land and the Book. You certainly have no shortage of choices these days in what you listen to, either online or on the air, and so we count it a, a privilege to spend some time with you. My name is John Geiger, by the way, and our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is ready to do what in this segment, Charlie? Uh, we're ready to answer questions. Uh, if you
1: got a question, uh, hopefully we'll have an answer. At least we'll try and point you to the Bible, which does have the answers to all of life's questions.
0: All right, we're going to start with Renate, who wants to know. It's been some time, by the way, she says, since I told you how much we appreciate the land and the book. Each segment is a must-listen, and like some others of your listeners, we listen to you twice each weekend on WTGN-FM in Lima, Ohio. Well, here's her question. Many well-educated Bible teachers who claim fluency in Hebrew and Greek state as a fact that the evil one wasn't always named Satan. Since childhood, I've heard about Lucifer, who rebelled, fell from grace, and then became Satan. However, it seems that's a mistranslation of the word for light in Isaiah dating back to Jerome some 1,600 years ago. I can't explain really well why this rankles me so, perhaps because frequent repeating of an erroneous phrase don't make it true. Or if those who teach us can ignore that mistake, where else has an incorrect translation been presented as fact, possibly distorting the story? Hey, am I paranoid here?
1: Yeah, you are not paranoid. And sadly, my answer is probably gonna make other people paranoid though. Now here's a good example of why looking at multiple translations of a Bible, can help us from coming to erroneous conclusions in our Bible study. Now, I'm with you. I don't believe Isaiah 14, 12 refers to Satan. In fact, I don't think Jerome did either. Jerome used the lowercase lucifer in his translation. Uh, That word in Latin has the meaning of light bringing. In context, it refers to the translation of the Hebrew word, which means shining one. In Isaiah fourteen twelve, the word is parallel to sun of the dawn. And the comparison being made there is to the morning star Venus, which shines just before dawn. So the Vulgate translation was actually on target. But the King James Version, as well as other writers, then took the word as a proper name. Uh, Lucifer with a capital L and said it must refer to Satan. And that's why uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, Milton's Paradise Lost, and the King James Version all identify Lucifer there in a way that makes people say that's got to be Satan, that's his name. Now, because of this later misunderstanding of the Vulgate, some scholars and Bible translators and teachers did fall into a trap of circular reasoning, and it goes something like this Question Why do we know Isaiah 14 is describing Satan? Answer because the passage identifies the individual as Lucifer. Question number two. How do we know Lucifer's the name of Satan? Answer, because his name occurs in Isaiah 14, which describes Satan. Well, personally, I see Isaiah 14 referring to a human ruler, not to Satan. He's specifically identified as a man in verses 16 and 17, and God says he'll be cast out of his tomb in judgment in verse 19. So he's someone who might've claimed to be like God, uh, but he's put down as being a human, and it's not a reference to Satan. Now, I can hear someone saying, what, you don't believe in Satan? Well, I do. I think his fall is clearly pictured in Ezekiel 28, where he's referred to as the king of Tyre, in contrast to the human ruler of Tyre, that who's merely ruled by a prince. In that passage, we're told that this individual was in Eden, who served as a guardian cherub on the mountain of God, who was perfect in all his ways from the day he was created till sin was found in him, and who was judged by God for his pride. Now, those details make it clear that Satan is in view, Uh, but you're on target when it comes to not seeing Satan being called Lucifer in Isaiah 14.
0: Matthew 27, verse 9 says, Jeremiah the prophet spoke about the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued. But that prophecy is also found in Zechariah 11, verse 13. Could Jeremiah have been added by a copyist?
1: Aha, uh-huh, yeah. And this is one of those when people are studying the Bible, you go, huh? Yeah, I actually see Matthew combining two passages of Scripture and then citing the more well-known of the two prophets for his main attribution. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, we can clearly see Matthew's allusion to Zechariah 11 when he describes the 30 pieces of silver there thrown to the potter in the house of the Lord. Uh, That's a prophecy that you can find in Zechariah. But I believe Matthew combines that passage with the events found in Jeremiah chapter 19. Uh, In that passage, Jeremiah goes out to the Valley of Hinnom. Well, that's the valley where Judas eventually hanged himself with a jar that he bought from a potter which he then smashed into the valley to picture God's impending judgment on Judah. Well, Matthew uses the location, the connection to the potter, and the smashing in the valley in judgment as allusions to Judas's ultimate judgment. So in essence, he combines the imagery from the two passages to show how they pointed toward Judas's final end. And then, having combined the elements from two different prophets, Matthew simply identifies the more well-known of the two sources. And somebody listening might say, well, that seems rather unusual to me, but let me give you another example. Uh, In Mark chapter one, verse two, Mark combines quotations from Isaiah 40, verse three, and Malachi chapter three, verse one, but he only mentions by name, the prophet Isaiah, who was the more well-known of the two prophets. So it's not how we might cite something, but it seems to be very consistent. And uh, that's probably why Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, even though he's referring to Jeremiah and Zechariah.
0: It's always a stretching experience when you and I sit down and look at uh, questions that have come in here on the land and the book, like this one. In Matthew 28, verse 9, on Easter Sunday, the women departed quickly from the tomb to bring Jesus' disciples' word that he had risen. Jesus met them on the way, and they held him by the feet and worshiped him, But John 20, verses 15 through 17 says, Jesus appeared to Mary outside the tomb and said to her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, how do you reconcile these two passages?
1: Yeah, I love these harmonies. Uh, Here's what I would say. In fact, I'm gonna give the harmony and then people can look up the uh, passages to match it up. We, We know early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and, quote, the others with them, all brought spices to the tomb. It's mentioned in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and and Luke and John. Now, when Mary Magdalene saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, she apparently left the other women and ran back to tell Peter and John. That's in John 20. The other women who remained at the tomb then saw the two angels who told them Jesus had risen from the dead. I'm sure they just stood there in awe, wondering what happened. But meanwhile, Mary had arrived back to the disciples. She gave her report. Peter and John then turn around and run back to the tomb to take a look inside. Mary Magdalene turns around and starts following them back to the tomb. But on reaching the garden, Jesus appeared to her before she could reach the tomb. At first, she thought he was the gardener and asked him about it. But then she learned it was Jesus. Jesus also then appeared to the other women as they were leaving the area. Now, on those last two points, I don't know if Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene or the other women first. Uh, Those two encounters had to take place very closely in time to one another. And in light of all that, here's how I harmonize Matthew 28, 9 and John 20. Uh, In Matthew 28, 9, I believe Jesus appeared to all the women minus Mary Magdalene who had first come to the tomb. They clasped his feet to worship him, which he allowed. In contrast, when Mary Magdalene recognized Jesus, she wanted to hold on to him. And the Greek word used there has the idea of holding tight or clinging to someone or something. I believe her natural reaction was to try to hold on to Jesus so as to not lose him again. Jesus had to gently remind her that his relationship with her and all the other disciples would now be different because he was about to ascend to the Father. He's looking there toward his heavenly ascension that would take place in just a few short weeks. She needed to understand that he wouldn't be physically present with his followers, but that was okay, because he'd already promised to send them
0: another comforter. A question from Yami, he says, during the millennial reign, it says in Ezekiel that people will live late into their hundreds, but why are they dying at all? My question is, why would they die and not stay with Jesus? Yeah. And, and the passage
1: that uh, you might have in mind is Isaiah sixty five twenty, where he said, no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Well, Isaiah then goes on to say in verse 22, for as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Uh, what he's saying is in the millennium, the lifespan of people is going to increase dramatically. But as you ask, why would people die at all? And to answer that, uh, just a little background here. When Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, everyone who's alive is gonna be judged. Uh, That's the judgment of the sheep and goats mentioned in Matthew 25. The unsaved are going to be sent away into judgment, but the saved will be allowed to enter the kingdom. Uh, those individuals will enter the kingdom in natural bodies, the bodies that they still have. Uh, will be there in glorified bodies. Old Testament saints will be in glorified bodies. But those who enter in natural bodies will still be able to marry and have children. So children will be born. Uh, Jesus is going to rule at that time with a rod of iron. And those who sin are going to get caught and punished. And thieves, cheats, violators will get caught. And yet there will still be some who think they can get away with it. And sadly, capital punishment will be enforced and they'll pay with their lives. And that's why I think Isaiah says those who fail to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They'll have been put to death for their sin, not because of illness or disease. That's why one purpose for the millennial kingdom is to show the real problem in life has never been poverty or the environment or Satan. It's ultimately the human heart.
0: And that's a look at questions that have come into us via email, and your connection, if you've got a question you'd like to share, is at moody.edu. Well, Charlie's devotional is next. It's a favorite with many listeners. I think you'll enjoy it. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. They say you should save the best for last. That's what we've done today on The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our teacher and host. Charlie's devotionals, have a way of taking you to a very specific spot in Israel. You see it in full color in 3D, I dare say. And today, Charlie, no exception. You know, when I was a kid, a hill was a fun thing. But you're going to take us today to a hill of failure? Yeah, you know, there's lots of hills uh, that
1: we know of. You know, there's a hill you can die on. There's hills you can play on. This is a hill you want to avoid. Well, all
0: kinds of hills and other places in Israel that are memorable. Here's a testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and now shares with us their Holy Land experience.
2: I'm just remembering back when I was so blessed and privileged to be able to go to Israel with my son. But the memories that I have seem like they were just yesterday. Probably the most memorable moment was where I stood by the Garden of Gethsemane. My daddy's favorite song was In the Garden and it brought me back to thinking of him who passed away in 1993 but he loved that hymn. And as I stood there even though he's long gone I thought of my daddy and then my father in heaven. It was just such a memorable time. I just can't say enough anyone that I've ever talked to I say go to Israel you will never ever Be the same. And that's the way I
0: feel about it. Thank you. Our thanks for that great testimony there on the land and the book. Well, Charlie, to your devotional today, A Hill of Failure. I'm uh, kind of confused by the title.
1: Oh, and I'm going to confuse you a little bit more, John, before I'm done. Uh, we're on our way to Nevi Samwil. It's about five miles northwest of Jerusalem, but it's not really the subject for today. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, I know you're confused, so. But since we're here, follow me to the roof of this old building that served as a church, a mosque, and a synagogue. All right. We're actually here because it gives us a great panoramic view of the area, including the place I want to talk about today. Look off to the southwest, just to the left of Jerusalem. See that hill over there that looks like it has a large biplane on top? That's the hill we're going to talk about today. That biplane is really the skeleton of an unfinished royal palace. It was started by Jordan's King Hussein back in the mid-1960s. Everything was progressing nicely until construction was interrupted by the start of the Six-Day War. That's when Israel captured the entire West Bank, including Hussein's unfinished palace. The building has remained an empty shell for 45 years. The project started well, but it's now just a decaying eyesore, a reminder of dreams overtaken by circumstances. Looking at Hussein's palace reminds me of an observation on life made by Howard Hendricks. He noted that 2,930 people are mentioned in the Bible by name. And of those who are named, about a hundred have their lives followed through the Bible. But sadly, of that hundred, only a third finished well. The majority failed to finish life successfully. And as I look over at that hill on which Hussein's palace sits, the history of that hill might help us unravel the mystery of why many people start well, but few finish well. You see, that hill represents a history of failure. The hill today is called in Arabic, Tel El Ful, Hill of Beans. But those who know the Bible know that hill as Gibeah, a town belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. And two snapshots from this town's history confirm the appropriateness of its name today. The people of Gibeah never amounted to a hill of beans. Our first photograph comes from the period of the Judges, a time when people ignored God and did what was right in their own eyes. And sadly, Judges 19 to 20 describe the impact such a philosophy had on the people of Gibeah. These two chapters take an unflinching look at a town where unbridled sexual immorality led to a callous disregard for others, to rape, to murder, and ultimately to a civil war that nearly wiped out one of the tribes of Israel. It's a sordid, sad tale of the consequences experienced by a town and a nation that refused to follow God. Gibeah was eventually rebuilt and reoccupied, and for a while it even acquired a place of prominence in Israel. It was the hometown of King Saul, and it became the capital for the entire kingdom. The city was now known as Gibeah of Saul. Sadly, the history of disobedience and failure still hung over this hill. Saul started well, but he quickly stumbled and fell in the race of life. He was too impatient to wait for the prophet Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice at Gilgal. He refused to obey God and destroy all the Amalekites. He was too fearful to fight Goliath and let a young shepherd face him instead. Saul started well, but as Hendricks notes... He was one of the many who didn't finish well. Look back over at Gibeah. That hill is a reminder that running the race of life requires endurance. It's not how well we start from the blocks that matters, but how we persevere, press on, and make it across the finish line that ultimately determines our success or failure. Now, I suspect some listening might feel even more depressed now than when I began. You're struggling through life limping, hurting, discouraged. The finish line is still a long way off, and frankly, you're ready to give up, to call it quits, to throw in the towel. But don't. In the early days of World War II, Winston Churchill visited Harrow School, his alma mater. While there, he spoke to the young men and talked about world events. He described the terrible, catastrophic events in the world that had taken place since his last visit. And then he focused on the lesson the previous 10 months should have taught everyone. Listen to his words.
3: Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. So what kind of
1: impact did Churchill's words really make? After his death, a survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto wrote to the New York Times describing the force that his speeches, like that at Harrow, had on the rest of Europe. When all the lights went out in Europe, in the black of the nights for months and months to come, his voice, his speeches kept us alive. He and his voice gave us the only hope that the evil would pass and that the world was not coming to an end. God bless his memory. In those dark days, many were ready to give up, but Churchill refused. And today we see how his resolve, from a human perspective, saved Britain and Europe from even greater horrors. Gibea, that hill in the distance, is a monument to failure, to giving up, to not finishing the job. And God hasn't called you to be a citizen of Gibeah. In the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, British runner and world record holder Derek Redmond was running in the semifinals of the 400 meters. Midway into the race, he heard a pop as his right hamstring tore and gave way. He pulled up as if he'd been shot, collapsing onto the track. But what happened next was amazing. Derek refused to quit. He got up and, in spite of intense pain, began limping his way down the track toward the finish line. His father ran out and helped hold Derek up as he painfully made it across that line. Derek finished dead last, but he finished. And his commitment to finish the race is now part of Olympic legend. Well, it's time to head back down to the bus and drive to the hotel. But before we go, take one more look at Gibeah. Cement that skeleton of a building in your mind and then say to yourself, By God's grace, I will finish the race. The Apostle Paul is one of those who did stay faithful. And in his final weeks of life, he passed on to his protege, Timothy, the words that need to come to mind whenever we're tempted to give up and quit. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course.
0: I have kept the faith. Never give up. Mm, Powerful. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, if you've got a question about a particular passage of the Bible that you've been studying, why not get an answer? Email that question of yours to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The land and the book at Moody. Edu. Love to hear from you. How's the program impacting your life? Maybe it's helped you with a sermon if you're a pastor. Maybe it's uh, given you an insight if you're a Sunday school teacher or just kind of broadened your perspective on all that God is doing in the Middle East. Share that in your email as well when you write to us at the land and the book at moody.edu. Our Facebook page is always fresh with stories that you ought to check out. Best way to get there is to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org and then click on the Facebook icon. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening.